Welcome to Constructing Mindsets, discussing the building blocks of our mental health. This week, we welcome Jamie Forsyth to share his story about living with bipolar disorder, something which affects 3 million people in the UK and takes an average of nine years to be diagnosed correctly. We'd like to shed some light on bipolar and also let Jamie share his story and hopefully help others suffering from the same disorder to come forward to speak about their experiences and also to raise awareness with others. So welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Hey, yeah. Um, nice to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Do you want to just start by telling us your story and how you got diagnosed? Yeah, no problem. Um, so I guess it started, I mean, looking back on it now, I guess I was showing signs and symptoms of bipolar around the age of 16, I'd say. Um, but then I didn't really... I didn't really realise that. It was only when I finished university and became... I started working at a pub and I became a pub manager. And that's in my early 20s. I kind of realised how erratic my behaviour um, could be. And, but I kind of put that down to the lifestyle and the hours worked and the, the kind of clientele I was surrounded by in the pub industry. Um, but it was... I, I, I had always had quite an addictive personality and... Um, working around the people I was, we were, I was always I gambled quite a lot, and when that gambling got out of hand, I decided to leave that trade. And I um, I applied to join the prison service. My, my dad actually worked in the prison service at Stafford Prison. And he got me an interview, and I ended up joining as a prison officer. And it was it was it was good for the first couple of years. I, I, my moods kind of like um, evened out a little bit. However, when the job became more stressful and there was more pressure on me, um, I, I, I really started to become quite erratic again. I'd, I'd have severe, severe low um, periods where I literally couldn't get out of work and uh, couldn't get out of bed, sorry, and I, I was I'm going to work and um, I'd be really low and then the next day I'd be, I'd be really high and people actually thought I was, I was on drugs and I, I got accused of it quite a bit and I, I was given a lot of random drug tests at work and um, yeah everyone thought I was on drugs and I, I kind of just put it down to uh, the stress of the job and then during one manic um, high I decided it would be a great idea to quit my job I just thought it was the best idea in the world I didn't I didn't have any plan I didn't I didn't think really too much into it and I handed in my, my notice and I just I never told my family or friends, and I um, obviously I got paid afterwards. And then suddenly, I would say it was about three or four weeks after I, I got paid last, and I'd left the job, and I was, I was lying to my family. Suddenly, I hit a low, and I couldn't get out of bed for a week, and my family were knocking on my door. I was I was, I was living at a friend's house at the time. I was renting his renting his house off him, and I literally just couldn't get out of bed. And I just didn't know what I was going to do. And I lied to my family and my friends saying I've got this other job, etc. And it just kind of escalated then. And then I, I actually ended up committing a crime. You know, I ended up committing frauds. Fraudulently um, took money off, off people saying that I had things for sale, which I didn't on, on Gumtree. Um, and I... Yeah, I took, I took the money, but then it kind of carried on because I was robbing Pete to pay Paul. Because when I, when I was in this depressive state, I, I was 
I, when I was in the mania, sorry, I wasn't really thinking about what I was doing. I was my, my behaviour was totally erratic. I mean, when I was in the prison service, I was um, I was going out all the time. I was life and soul of the party. I was uh, I was promiscuous. I was sleeping around. I was I was it, it was just I was constantly trying to be the party person, the person that everyone was laughing at, etc. And when I went on a on a low, it was kind of realization hit and when I committed this crime and I um, I went through a low period I was like what the hell am I going to do and I thought to myself right I've got no job I my friends friends and family don't know and I ended up committing the crime again so basically robbing Peter to pay Paul and um, for the whole time and it got so out of hand I eventually just walked to the police station and just said to the police that I've done this I've done that this would be the easiest case of um, that you'll ever have to deal with because I'll be totally honest about it and I ended up in prison um, and as an ex-prison officer you can imagine that it's, it was um, not the best place to be and yeah. The, um, yeah the experience that I had in there I, I, you know, I'm going to deal with for the rest of my life really um, and I came out and it was, it was hell if I'm honest it was hell in there and it was hell when I came out um, because I didn't know why I still wasn't diagnosed I didn't know why I was the way I was and my family didn't know why I was the way I was and they just thought I was just I had lost friends over it they just thought I was a horrible person because they just didn't understand at the time and um, yeah, it was a really scary really scary period in my life had you ever been to the to see a doctor before this point as in or did your friends and family ever encourage you to explore what might have been wrong? Yeah. 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 I, I, went to, I went to doctors and they tried to put me on antidepressants and they, they, they made me antidepressants and I just didn't take them. Okay. I just didn't want to ex- accept that there was something wrong. I didn't like the idea of um, being controlled by drugs. And I just, kind of, I, just, I just don't think I was ready to accept that there was anything wrong, really. But yeah, they tried. They tried, and looking back on it now, they, they were they were desperate at one point. And you can imagine what it was like for my my dad, especially, was in the prison service in the same prison as me at the time. Like, wow. When I went to prison, as well. So when I actually got convicted and went to prison, I couldn't. I worked that many prisons around the Midlands. I, I couldn't go anywhere. They wouldn't send me anywhere, and they they sent me to a Dovegate prison and near Utoxeter and they tried to put me on the vulnerable wing with um, sex offenders and whatnot and I, I refused to do it and I, I, I ended up going on the normal side and I, it's, it's weird because when I was in the prison service I, I had glasses and I was clean shaven and I, so I grew a beard <laughs> to try and not be recognised because I knew I would be. Yeah. It was only until the end of my, the end of my, service, um, my sentence really that um, it got out that I used to be a prison officer because a, a prison officer told some prisoners. So, you know, I did pretty well, really, right up until the end. But it's only when I was in prison that I, I, I kind of decided that, I, you know, there was definitely something wrong and I needed to get this diagnosis. And so then what did you do when it, you sort of had that realisation that you need to get it diagnosed? Who did you approach and, and how did you take it from there? So... 
I spoke to the, the, the prison the prison doctor and they referred me to the, the mental health team in there and then this was right near the end of my sentence so I came out and I was um, I was referred to the mental health crisis team when I came out because the, the initial kind of two months when I came out of prison was really hard for me. Yeah. I, I like to think I'm quite an intelligent person and the only thing I could really um, do work-wise, the only qualifications I got, I, I'd been at university studying criminal justice and human rights and I had a MVQ in custodial care and they're really not much use to you when you've, when you've got a, um, a conviction criminal conviction so I was trying to get a job at the same time while I was getting this this diagnosis and um, it was just I was just getting knocked back back constantly I was was either because of my conviction or because of my diagnosis because I've always been open about um, since I've come out of prison I've always been open about my diagnosis as soon as I got it I've been open about it however it takes time to get that diagnosis. You touched on it earlier. The average is nine years. I think I was quite lucky, actually. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things, if I'd gone someone at, someone at the age of 16, I probably would have got a diagnosis earlier, but I just wasn't ready to do that. Um, so I came out and went through the mental health crisis team, yeah, and I um, saw psychiatrists and um, lots of specialists, and I think it was pretty plain to see that that was that was what was going on. I uh, got diagnosed with type 2 bipolar. Wow. Um, I'm always quite intrigued about the prison system itself. And, you know, when you were in prison, that there, what level of mental health support was there in the prison system itself? And because it doesn't sound like it wasn't until you were coming out of prison that then, you know, you got the support and you were diagnosed. Or, or did it, was it something that when you were in prison, you sort of didn't really want to accept and you were going through a denial period of, well, I, I don't want to address it because... You know, I, I don't want to accept that I have an issue. Yeah, I mean, when I worked for the prison service, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I never really knew much about the mental health services that we offered, which is terrible, really. Yeah. I, I think all the prison officers should get some sort of basic mental health training because a high percentage of people in prison have, have got, you know, mental health issues or conditions or have been definitely undiagnosed. Absolutely. Uh, and when I, was, when I was in prison, I wasn't offered anything at all. There wasn't anything offered. It was only through me being the kind of person I was and realising, you know what, you do need help. But it was only me asking the questions and and probing and and pushing to see someone that I actually got got seen and got the ball rolling, really. I don't think, if I hadn't said anything, then I wouldn't have been just, you know, I wouldn't have had someone come round and assess me for my mental health. Which, looking back, is 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 it's a total, it's total neglect, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess looking back, you kind of think all the changes you'd like to make to that system, or or see it needing to change in order to help people who are in well, were in your position, are are in your position now, because um, it affects so many people in the prison system. So it's so vital that there is that training in place and they have access to that sort of support. Yeah, I mean, in my in my case. I just think sending me to prison was probably the wrong thing to do anyway. Mm. I'm not saying I shouldn't have been um, punished for, the, for what I did. However, when I, when I went to the police station and told them everything, it was, it's clear to see that um, 
if you see why why what happened had happened and that I was remorseful and I clearly needed help um, but instead at that point I think the the mental health assessment should be done I, I think that's when that's when they really should have said well let's let's give a mental health assessment first and not just send me to prison especially as an ex-prison officer I'm not saying you should you know you shouldn't go to prison as an ex-prison officer if you've done something wrong I, I just don't think that that was the right thing to do in my case and if, if I'd been assessed before then I, th- I think that would have been I think that's probably what would have happened but yeah it just be. Yeah, it's interesting to think that they wouldn't necessarily assess people before going into prison to understand, you know, how they might be rehabilitated as well. Because I think that's really important. You know, it makes mental health problems worse, I'm sure, if people already are suffering, than to go into prison. Um, everything's sort of amplified. Yeah, I think I think if 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 someone is committed a crime and they've got previous mental health issues, you know, then there will already be. Um, flagged up to them and I'm sure they, they do certain assessments then. It's just in my case nothing was nothing was done at all. Um and it, at that point I didn't want to use my mental health as an excuse. Okay. In fact I was, I was ashamed of it. Yeah. Really. I was ashamed that you could I could potentially be diagnosed with something like bipolar or um and that's just down to the stigma around it, I guess. Yeah. Um, looking back I really wish I hadn't had that Talk- process. Yeah, talking about actually stigma, um, Hannah, I know that, you know, you pre- on previous podcasts have spoken about, you know, going through depression um, and it's something, you know, you're still managing. And I just wonder, does the stigma and shame around what Jamie is talking about here and bipolar, does that resonate with you and what you experienced? And did you feel this sort of, well, I don't want to accept I have it because there is so much stigma associated with it? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, my family weren't like Jamie's in the sense that I was very much told to not go get help. <laughs> so because of that stigma that was with them, that they were very much like, you don't want people to know that you have this. And it, it took a really long time for me to stop letting that stigma define my life before I started talking about my own experiences with it. And yeah, it's definitely still very prevalent. There's definitely people I work with who, when I tell don't really know how to deal with it or feel like it debilitates me in some way which I personally don't feel is true I feel like I manage mine quite well so I think it's always things like with stigma you've got people like Jamie and all of us who are talking from either experience or having to support people that have been through mental health issues and um, but the big change what I think will really happen when it's those people who have never suffered or experienced it in any context actually take time to learn about them and start speaking up about it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I think that, you know, the stigma around it is it's still massively there. It's obviously getting better. We're talking about it more. However, when I came out of prison, I still, even though we were discussing that it was potentially bipolar or something along those lines. Um, even then, after after everything we'd been through as a family or, or whatever, there was still, I felt like nobody believed me. I felt like people thought I was using that as an excuse. And I think that's what it was for me. And when I came out of prison, I felt so isolated and, and desperate and hope, like absolutely hopeless because I was trying to get jobs and I, I couldn't get them and I just feel like if 
my family and friends and ex-colleagues had more awareness about it, then I wouldn't have been in that position in, in the first place. I just think it's so important because it's support out afterwards, no matter how small it was, and it saved me in the end. Yeah. You know, because in, I, when I came out of prison, I, I, attempt, I shouldn't be here. That, that, that's just the truth. I, I, I shouldn't be having this conversation with you. I took an overdose. And I put, God knows, that hundreds of pills into a into a blender with some orange juice. And I I, I took the lot. I, you know, I ended up in hospital. I got my stomach pumped and, and whatever. But I shouldn't be here. And I, I just feel like no one should ever get to that position. Yeah. No one should ever be made to feel like like that or embarrassed about how they're feeling or like they're not worthy of working for someone because they've got this condition or because of the stigma or worried about what people will think employing someone who's an ex-criminal or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's about making people more aware that people can be suffering with bipolar, for example, because you know there's lots of different... When we talk about mental health, there can be lots of different disorders, illnesses that people can suffer from. And as you found, it's very difficult to diagnose exactly what might be affecting you and through your support network it's also about trying to find well who is there to help you go through that and identify it accept it um and actually work to get through the other side and get the right support i wonder louise in i guess in the workplace as a mental health first aider do these symptoms sound familiar when talking about bipolar is it something that mental health first aiders um are looking out for or, or, or know what to look out for considering it's you know maybe not as common as, as other um mental health issues such as depression so i think we are trained on uh, bipolar it does form part of the training but i very much think it's one of those ones that you need to do further research into so i've not come across it in the work i've done in the workplace and I'm very grateful for Jamie to join us because it, it educates me further um, and I certainly think there's a misconception around bipolar but the, the long diagnosis period is quite concerning um, but I guess that's because of the mania periods and the depression periods it's hard to pinpoint and so it might be something we can all look out for more in our colleagues or just be aware of that there is a, a mental illness that can actually make you happy and hyperactive and completely different to what we think of when we think of mental ill health so i think that's kind of a key point i'm learning today that actually you know if even if someone's kind of down one day but then the next day seems fine or seems hyperactive or happy actually it could be a sign of something bigger so yeah it's something i'm definitely gonna have to take away and educate myself on more um and i think it's fine to admit that because we're all learning and the more people that learn about mental ill health the better for the whole of kind of our industry and for society as well yeah yeah definitely because i think the other thing with mental health as well is that quite a lot of them can be present in you from when you're at quite a young age so you end up living your life suffering with that condition that you don't actually know that it's not normal you don't know that those thoughts and feelings that those changes of behavior and things are like not normal for you because you've always had them so i think that's what makes mental health even harder to diagnose because when you have a physical illness or a physical pain you're like oh this hurts i'm going to go to the doctor and get it checked out but when it's something you've had for quite a long time you're like oh this is normal behavior this is just me you wouldn't think to go and ask for that help either which makes as jamie was saying going to that initial like being ready to go for that help even even harder 
Which is why I think I, I think that's a brilliant point. I just I just think we need to educate children more with mental health as well. So so people are recognising the signs and symptoms of certain illnesses earlier on. You know, I, I've got a two and a half year old boy, and I, I want it for him to be the norm to talk about it. I, I want it to be you know, if someone doesn't talk about it, then they're kind of you know, well, why aren't you talking about it? Yeah, yeah. That, that's the way it should be, not not the other way around, which has always been. Even when I came out of prison, and I've done everything I've done since, and I, I talk about the condition, and I, I do mental health and uh, first aid, etc. I still feel like maybe my, when I'm putting stuff on social media as well, still my parents, I think, are still like, oh, I wish you just would stop talking about it <laughs> a little bit, because I still think of their generation is, is that. Um, that stigma is still massive but that's just I genuinely think that's just through a lack of understanding yeah no I completely agree when we've spoken about this previously actually there there's this like generational divide and I think you know, and part of this podcast is to talk about mental health a lot more and to actually break down that stigma that people still attach to it but you will get people that don't really understand what it means and maybe haven't suffered from it or haven't known someone that has that also then put up barriers and say well you know I'm just not quite sure what the fuss is about like why do we have to talk about it but the more we talk about it the higher awareness we'll have of these things and also the better we'll be prepared to help other people identify it and also manage it so I, I think it's so important to be talking about it and that's why it's great to have you on today because we haven't addressed bipolar at all and it's clearly something that doesn't get enough exposure to really get people knowing what it means and actually identifying it potentially in other people um so after your diagnosis what then what happened how did you find well how long did it take you to get get back into the workplace how did you find the transition back into work and was it you know was it slow was it fast how did you find it it was really hard yeah there's there's no other way of putting it it was it was the, the worst i kind of three, four months of my life being out of being out of work and being in limbo kind of with with a diagnosis again, I guess. And it was only I was introduced to a woman called Adele Marshall when I was in when I was in prison and um, she was working with the prison to help people kind of go straight out of prison into work. And I think she kind of recognised that I maybe kind of wasn't your your average prisoner. Um, and she put me in touch with a, a lady called um, Victoria Perry and it took a little while for me to get in contact with her afterwards because of how I was when I came out and the depression I was going through and just, you know, with, with the, um, the overdose and everything, it, it kind of knocked everything back a fair bit. But once I got in contact with her, she runs, runs a scheme called the Open Door Scheme in, in Statue Council and they basically give people who are struggling to get back into work or have got gaps in their CV for whatever reason, the opportunity to do some voluntary work um, throughout Staffordshire. And I was lucky enough to actually do my voluntary work with um, Amy, the company Amy, who I work for now. And I, I basically volunteered Monday to Friday, nine to five for three and a, just over three months it was. Um, and that was hard. You know, when you've got no money coming in and you've got your friends and family kind of still on your back to a degree, you know, you, uh, you, what you're doing for work, you're getting yourself back to normal. And it, it was really hard, but the, the experience I got was brilliant. And it was then that 
they, they actually offered me a full-time job at the end of it, which is fantastic. And it just kind of restored my faith in people and, and businesses, you know, and I've said it before, it's not often you can say that the company you work for saved your life, but they actually did. Mm. I actually genuinely feel like that. And that's why I worked so hard and passionately for them now with their well-being, because if, if I feel like that, then there's, there's, there's hundreds of other people, thousands of other people there feeling like that. And I would never, ever want anyone to feel the way I did. But since I've joined them, I've, you know, I've, I've been promoted twice. I'm, a, I'm like a lead operations controller now for Savage Highways. And I'm mental health first aider, mental health first aid instructor now as well. So I, I do be, um, I do some of the in-house training for Amy as well. And I've been on their talent tracker scheme and I now mentor for the open door scheme that I, I came in on, which is actually council, so it's kind of gone full circle. Amazing. And the difference between um, an employer who teaches their, their staff and trains their staff in, in things like mental health and wellbeing compared to not, it's, it's, it's just night and day. And I just think... I'm very lucky to work for the company I am now, but it, it was hard work, you know, and the, the rejection I got, the constant rejection and judgment before was, was just, it was it was horrific. It just made me feel worthless. Yeah. It's a vicious cycle. And I guess I was quite lucky, really, to have been given um, Vicky's name, because without that, I, I genuinely don't think I'd be in Amsterdam. Um, fantastic, really, but hard work, but it, pay, it pays off. Yeah, I mean, that's such an amazing story. Yeah, I mean, being open and honest with Amy as well from the start has helped because I haven't had to, I haven't had to hide anything. They know yeah. I've come through this, this, this scheme and I've literally done, I've, I've lost track how many talks I've done now for Amy to staff about my experience. And so it's just, it's just great to have that relationship with your employer where you can both be open and, and, and draw on each of it's just, just perfect yeah I mean incredible story that you you know you made such an impact as a volunteer and they actually you know welcomed you with open arms and you had that open honest conversation with them from the very start but also amazing that they actually celebrate what you've been through and how strong you've been and where you are now and you get to celebrate that with other employees in the business yeah I, I mean Amy, Amy are fantastic. The, the, the wellbeing network is, is is growing. The mental health first aid network is growing. We, yeah. we do regular pulse surveys to find out what people want. It's just, it just feels like it's really going somewhere. And I, I, I've seen a massive difference. I've worked for them for five years now. Okay. The difference in that five years is it's been unbelievable with the way that people talk and. I've seen people who wouldn't talk about it before now openly talk about actually becoming well-being ambassadors and it's just you know it's just an amazing feeling really yeah it's brilliant it sounds like you've had a, a huge impact on that as well and you know in riding that wave over the five years and it's also great to hear how things can change so quickly when you know the business wants them to change and the, and the people actually embrace it and and make that change happen yeah but that, but that stands for them giving me an opportunity to talk about it because i, I generally yeah. think that you, you can when I'm teaching the mental health first aid course, I feel that my experience gives what I'm saying credibility. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like it's just another training session. Do you know what I mean? And it's, it, 
Yeah, absolutely. Hannah, do you have anything you'd like to say in terms of, I guess, that that recovery process and getting back into the workplace? Um, I think the main thing to note is appreciating how challenging it is because it's Mm. like I said before, it's not like a physical ailment. You're quite literally fighting with your own head. And when you've been at the point that Jamie's been um, and I have been at that point as well, it can be really, really hard to see your own value and worth so being able to have uh, companies that are really supportive of what you're going through and who are taking the time to learn about it and learn from you and your experiences because it's never it's always different for everyone no one's experience even with bipolar although there'll be bits that are similar no one's experience is going to be the same so i think having the fact that you've had such a great employer bringing you back in is amazing and i think that's something that everyone can do all companies can work towards is trying to start that understanding so that as people are coming forward through mental health first aiders or um coming back off of doctor's notes and things that you kind of have some understanding of where they're at and what they need and um it will just make everything so much easier for them because the fight that they're going through in their head is, is hard enough as it is yeah i, I saw a scary statistic. i think it's only 20 or 20 or 21 percent of people with a long-term mental health condition are in employment wow that's so low it's it's scary yeah really really low and it, i guess if employers were more willing to embrace those people and actually offer them support and do things to encourage them to be in the workplace and to talk about what they're going through and to help them through then it, that statistic wouldn't need to be that low and more you know we'd have more people in the workforce yeah and, and the, you know with things like the open door scheme it's kind of the, the best of both worlds really because you I might not have been ready for employment and being on something like the open door scheme it it allows me the opportunity to see how much I can do or I'm ready to do and it also gives an employer the chance to see you do that before you work for them as well because you know if someone has got a condition like I have then the, the company need to know about it and they need to be um, aware that there may be days or, or weeks even where you aren't necessarily up to doing your job as well as you would do normally. Yeah. Um, and I just think something like the Open Door, it, it just gives everyone the opportunity to realise that, I mean, 21%, it, it's ridiculous. You, you know, just because you've got a long-term mental health condition doesn't mean that you, you're not able to contribute to society yeah i completely agree and an amazing scheme that as well and i'm i don't know if there are any kind of similar ones around other parts of, of the country but things like that are just so valuable for allowing people to get back into the workforce as well and louise i don't know if you know of anything similar or, or initiatives that, that companies have done to, to help people get back into the workplace after suffering with a mental health condition or, or a or long-term mental health condition so i don't know if it's specific to mental health but some companies run a stem returners program so in our industry that's for people who have had a career break for whatever reason um quite often it's pitched at say months that went away and had children and had a period of time out of the workplace but I don't see for any reason if you had a mental health break why you couldn't go on a program like that um, to get you back into the workplace and find out kind of what's changed while you've been gone and also how to get 
kind of stuck back into it. So that's very much science, technology, engineering and math space. But I guess that's the industry we, we work in. But I just think it's, yeah, it's incredible that the schemes like that do exist. We're missing out on so many great people just because of a mental health diagnosis, which we wouldn't be turning away if it was a physical diagnosis. So, yeah, I think we all need to kind of open our eyes a bit more that having a mental illness doesn't define who you are and what you can do as a job. Um, and I think that's something that we're still struggling to overcome a bit. Um, but it's definitely something that stories like Jamie's and people talking about mental ill health show that it doesn't define who someone is as a person. It's something they carry along with them, but it's just something you deal with on the side, much like all of us deal with other things on the side of our day job. Um, and I think the more companies that recognise that, then the better we'll be as an industry. Uh, and, and do you know what? It, 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 in some cases, like, like mine, I, I actually think, like I'm a line manager now, and there's aspects of that line manager role which I think my condition and my experience make me a better line manager. Yeah, so, I'm sure. This is exactly how I feel about it. I think that there's people always only see the negative of the mental health issue, and actually I think there's so many things that it brings to you. I think it really helps build some other skills that are great. Just general roles like management, like being able to have the empathy, being able to understand where people come from, and and also understanding the value in that to someone because you've been that person who needed that support. And I, yeah, I think the problem with mental health is that they always show the negative side and they never show that there are definitely things that you learn from them. Like it's a really, especially if you get quite low, it's a really horrendous thing to go through and it takes a lot of you to pull yourself back out. And the strength that that requires, I think is just a skill that people don't appreciate enough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What an amazing story that I think everyone is going to hopefully just think twice about you know, what bipolar is, what it means to be diagnosed, and also, as we've spoken about, the importance of really raising awareness and reducing stigma around any mental health condition. Um, it's great you're also doing so much as well in this space. Like I know that you're very active on LinkedIn. Um, you're doing a lot within Amy itself, and Amy sounds like it's a brilliant company and's got some great initiatives that that are happening. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story because it's been incredibly interesting, and I think we've all learned so much, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So yeah, thank you very much for joining. I don't know if you have any kind of final remarks, but um, yeah, just please go ahead if you do. I mean, just, just thank you for having me because I just, I genuinely believe the more people we, we speak to, we, we educate around it, it's just, it'll make life so much better for everyone. Now, I never want anyone to go through what I went through. And people always say, oh, would you do anything differently? But I wouldn't now actually because it's led me to where I, where I am now, you know, and I, I just I just hope that no one feels like they have to go through what I did. So being invited to talk to yourselves or whatever else I do, it's just it's just another opportunity to um, educate more and, and get people talking more. And I think I think that's it. Talking. I think the most effective way of communication can just be as simple as a cup of coffee. Yeah. And then the simplest gestures often have the strongest effects and I believe that like the, com- the compassion and empathy that you have through this education it just gives you the power to be more open-minded when you're challenged by certain people or certain circumstances and you're only going to get that 
empowerment by talking about it. So thank you for having me. That's great advice, and I think we can all be more compassionate and empathetic with you know our friends our family and and our colleagues thank you everyone for listening today and if you would like to rate review and subscribe to our podcast please do and you'll find us on um, apple music spotify and soundcloud thank you very much for listening 